can grab a seat. If you have a Bible with you, you can open up to Romans chapter 8. This morning, we're going to look at the last nine verses. So we'll start in Romans 8, 31, and we'll work our way down to Romans 8, 39, which will end Romans chapter 8. It will also end this, this section that we've been in over the last few months, which is Romans 8, or Romans 6, 1, all the way through Romans 8, 39. So we'll have a chance to just wrap up that whole section, and then next week, Romans 9, will move us into a new portion of the letter to Romans. While you get situated... Um, Two things. The first is, over the weekend, uh, on Friday, you should have received an email from the church, if you're someone who attends here regularly, uh, that gave some information about changes that are uh, taking place within our ministry in Haiti and our partnership with Source Still of Grace. Uh, if, you, if you got that and you've read it, thank you. Our, uh, the industry standard in the church world is that like 30% of people open their emails. So if, you, uh, have, if you're the 70% that hasn't read that email, uh, we would ask that you open that email and read it. There's important information in there. But one of the things uh, that it offers is an invitation to come next Sunday at 4 p.m. Uh, if you want to hear more about how it is that we arrived at the decision that we made and why it is that we're making changes in that partnership, we invite you to come and take part in that, uh, we'd love to talk with you, answer any questions, be able to explain the process by which uh, multiple uh, levels of people here within our church uh, came to that decision. That's next Sunday, 4 p.m. here at the church. Uh, we'd love to, to be able to walk through that with anybody that has questions, um, talk about some of the research that we did and what led us to our decision. So check your email, read that. Uh, email about changes in our Haiti ministry. And then if you're interested in more information, you can come join us next Sunday, uh, four o'clock. Sound good? Awesome. I'm going to pray and then we'll jump into Romans uh, 8 31. God, thank you for this morning, for the chance to come and to worship. God, to worship you in song, to declare, uh, Lord, that you will lead us safe to shore. Lord, uh, just like we looked at last week, for those who have been justified by grace through faith, God, it is certain that our glorification is coming. And God, it is your spirit that is going to carry us to that place, God, and the chance to gather together and to proclaim that and to sing that uh, is a blessing. God, I thank you for the opportunity to study your word this morning. God, I pray that your spirit would be here and take your word and apply it and press it deep into our hearts, God, not just Having it, having it rest in our minds, Lord, but truly, God, we pray that your spirit would take your word and use it to transform us, God. I pray that we would be submissive to the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and in our lives this morning and beyond this, the walls of this building. God, I pray that we would live lives as devoted followers of Jesus Christ who are centered on and stand firmly upon the truth of the gospel, God, who proclaim that message uh, to the world around us, God, who pursue Christ-likeness in all that we do and live in unity as a church, God, who make disciples. Lord, would your spirit do that transformative work in our lives? Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Most people, when they uh, were in school, are asked at some point in high school or junior high-ish uh, age range to read the classic novel To Kill a Mockingbird. Maybe you've uh, 
didn't read that in school, but maybe you've seen the movie adaptation. And the novel, the story of To Kill a Mockingbird comes to a high point in this courtroom scene at the very uh, end of the book, particularly when Atticus Finch, he's Tom Robinson's lawyer, stands up and he gives this uh, closing argument. And it's, you can go and find it on YouTube later. It's like six minutes long. But present in the courtroom at that time are all the key players in any courtroom scene. There's a plaintiff and the prosecutor, a judge, a defendant. There's the defendant's attorney, who's that person's advocate. What happens at the end of To Kill a Mockingbird is that Mayella Yule has made a charge against a man named Tom Robinson. He's the defendant. And Mayella's lawyer is there. His name is Horace Gilmer. And Atticus Finch is Tom Robinson's lawyer. And Judge Taylor is on the bench. And Atticus Finch stands up and he gives this closing statement. And it reaches a high point when he says that he believes that the court in America is the great leveler of all people. That truly in the court of law, all people are created equal, or at least they should be. And then he makes this statement, I am no idealist to believe firmly in the integrity of the courts and our jury system. That is no ideal to me. That is a living, working reality. Now I'm confident that you gentlemen will review without passion the evidence you have heard, come to a decision, and restore this man to his family. And then he gives this sort of passionate plea to them at the end. He says, in the name of God, do your duty. It's one of the most dramatic court scenes. Uh, it's, it's maybe not as memorable as you can't handle the truth sort of moment. But that depiction of Atticus Finch by actor Gregory Peck um, led the AFI, the American Film Institute, to declare that Atticus Finch is the greatest movie hero in film history. All because of the way he handles this court scene. Today, in Romans 8, 31 to 39, Paul's going to take us into a similar court setting. There's a plaintiff and a prosecuting attorney. There's a judge and a defendant. There's an advocate on behalf of the defendant. There are charges leveled. And what happens is that Paul is going to lay out for us, Romans 8, 31 to 39 is going to lay out for us that even in the harshest of court settings, there's absolute certainty for believers. And so that's what we're going to see this morning. Romans 8, 31 to 39 picks up right where we left off last week in Romans 8, 30. Um, In fact, that needs to be the proper starting point that we remind ourselves of before we jump in because everything in Romans 8, 31 to 39 is further assurance for those who find themselves in the chain of Romans 29 to 30. Paul said in those verses that those God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that, the, so that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Everyone in that chain, and no one slips out. That's what we talked about last week. Everyone in that chain gets the assurance that glorification is absolutely coming and then gets the assurance that comes from Romans 31 to 39. The assurance is this, it's twofold. Nothing can separate us from God and nothing can separate God's love from us. In fact, that's going to form the outline by which we look at these nine verses. The us here is important. The us is about a specific group of people. 
And it's that group of people who have been justified and will be glorified. The us in this instance is everyone who has been justified by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. When we read this passage, Romans 31 to 39, and it makes some amazing promises and statements about who God is and the fact that we can't be separated from him and the fact that his love can never be taken away from us. The us is crucial. And so the first thing that I'm going to ask you to do this morning is to give honest consideration as to whether or not that us describes you. Romans 8:28 says that we know that God works all things for good for those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. That's a promise for followers of Christ. It's a promise for those who have been justified by grace through faith in Jesus. These promises this morning are for the same people. If you have been justified by grace through faith, the promises of Romans 8, 31 to 39 apply to you. If you have not, then step one would be to consider whether or not the work of Jesus Christ on the cross is what Scripture says that it is. Whether or not sin in humanity is what it says it is. Whether or not you need a Savior and whether or not Jesus Christ is that Savior. That's step one if you're not squarely situated in the us that Paul is going to describe here. So keep that in mind as we go forward. I want to give one other really brief uh, statement before we jump in. And that's, we've talked a lot about the Holy Spirit over the course of Romans chapter 8, which has taken us five weeks to work through. One of the statements that we've made is that every single believer, every single person who is justified by grace through faith, receives the Holy Spirit. We are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. If you're a note taker, jot down Ephesians 1, 11 through 14. That's one of the texts that lays out that doctrine for us. I'm just going to read a portion of it right now. It says, in him, this is verse 11, that's Christ, we have also received an inheritance. That as those who have been justified, we've got this inheritance coming. And then in verse 13, in him, Christ, you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed. The Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. The Holy Spirit seals every single believer, every single person who heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed. You were saved by grace through faith. You received the Holy Spirit. You were sealed, and that Holy Spirit is a deposit, a down payment on what is to be yours for all of eternity. So if you are a believer, you have the Holy Spirit, and it's the Holy Spirit then that is applying all the blessings of our salvation. That's what we've been talking about in Romans 8. And Paul's going to lay out for us two more of them that should give us ultimate assurance. Look with me at verses 31 and 32. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not even spare his own son, but offered him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? Paul's going to ask a series of rhetorical questions, but then he also offers an answer for those questions at various points. Typically what he does is he asks the question, then he provides an answer. And the first question that he asks is, who can stand against us? Who can stand against followers of Christ? The answer is not that no one might try. The answer is that no one could possibly succeed in standing against us. Go back to the courtroom scene. 
This is starting from the very basic premise of who could even level a charge against us. Who could try to be the plaintiff that says, you, follower of Christ, in the ultimate courtroom of God's final judgment, have no hope? Paul says no one could do that for us. And you might be sitting here this morning and think to yourself, now hold on a minute. I know me, and there are plenty of realities that stand against me. What about this unbelieving world that we live in that sometimes ridicules us as believers or makes it seem like we're being ridiculed as believers? What about my own indwelling flesh and sin? What about the frailty of my human body and the reality of my impending death? Surely all those things stand against me. They level a charge against me. The answer to that would be yes. Those things are certainly marshaled against us in a broken world, but they're no match for God, whose spirit is within you, helping you, carrying you. If God is for us, who could possibly be against us? Who could level a charge against us? The answer is no one. There's no plaintiff. There is no thing who could successfully bring a legitimate charge against you in the courtroom of God's final judgment. And God has proven it a particular way. Look at verse 32. He did not even spare his own son, but offered him up for us all. That's the proof that nothing could stand against you. Paul's going to offer, or offer an explanation that moves from greater to lesser. That if he gave you his son, the ultimate thing, will he not also give you everything else you could possibly need for living a life that follows him and is obedient to him? If he gave you the great thing, won't he give you all of the lesser things as well? The truth is that God gave everything to you when he gave his son for you. God sent his son, God the Father, sent the son as the ultimate expression of his glory and the perfect proof of his love. And not only did he send him, but the wording here in verse 32 is specific and intentional. He did not even spare his own son, but offered him up for us all. That phrase, offered him up, is the exact same verb construction that's used in the Gospels of three different people. It's used of Judas, of the high priest, and of Pontius Pilate. Each one, we're told, delivered up Jesus. Here, Paul says literally that God delivered up his own son on our behalf. Ultimately, It was not Judas, it was not a high priest, it was not Pilate who offered Jesus to be crucified. They were willing tools in the hands of a glorious and a loving father who delivered his son that we might be saved. Everything necessary for your justification, initiated by the father who offered up the son, who secured it for you on the cross. Everything necessary for your freedom from the charges of your flesh and of your sin, from the charges of the very powers of hell, initiated by the Father who sent the Son, who secured those things for you on the cross. Everything necessary for your life and sanctification, secured by the Son on the cross. First Peter, our second Peter, chapter one, verses one through four, state this explicitly. Beginning in verse three, it says, his divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. By these, he has given us very great and precious promises so that through them, you may share in the divine nature, escaping the corruption that is in this world because of evil desire. God's given you everything in his son 
the ultimate expression? Won't he give you everything lesser required to live in glorifying relationship with him? An argument from greater to lesser. Nothing could possibly stand against you. Paul goes on though in verse 33. Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. So who can accuse us before God is the next question. Go back to the courtroom. No prosecuting attorney could ever argue a successful case against you. No prosecution could possibly prevail. Again, it's not that no one will try, but that no one will ultimately succeed. And the reason for that is because our advocate, our defender, is greater than any opposing attorney could ever hope to be. Our advocate is so good, in fact, that the judge has already ruled. We have already been forgiven. God has already justified us. If you were to go and watch the final scene in the movie To Kill a Mockingbird, when Atticus Finch, played by Gregory Peck, gets up and he offers his closing argument, uh, it is said that he did that in one take. It's like six and a half minutes long. That Gregory Peck walked onto the set, he offered that closing argument in one take, and they said, that's it, we don't need to see anymore. When you read it in To Kill a Mockingbird, it's, the logic is airtight, and yet Tom Robinson is convicted. He's guilty. What Paul says here is that no one could possibly accuse you because the closing argument of Jesus Christ's death on the cross is airtight. It is impossible for someone to refute it for all time for every person who is justified. No contrary argument could ever refute it or shout it down. It is absolutely impossible. Romans 8, 3 and 4 says that what the law could not do since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son into the world in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering in order that the law's requirement would be fulfilled in us. That cannot be taken away from you, Paul says. Someone might try to argue it against you, but they cannot succeed. Your very conscience at times might feel as though it stands in prosecution against you. There could be people who want to point an accusing finger at you. Neither of those could be successful because God's already justified you. It's done. Christ's work on the cross sealed it for you. Not even Satan, the great accuser, could leverage a charge successfully. You've been justified. Prosecution is worthless. It's been determined. It has been set. And then Paul goes on in verse 34. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He is also at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Who could condemn us before God is the next question that Paul poses. When we read that at the start of verse 34, who is the one who condemns? It should remind us of Romans 8, verse 1. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul is putting a bow tie on the argument he started at the very beginning of what we have as Romans chapter 8. He's bringing that to a conclusion. No judge could ever submit a condemning verdict. That's because the ultimate judge has already issued his, and that verdict is innocent thanks to his grace received through faith in the work of Christ. Again, it's not that no one will try. It's that no one will succeed. Who could possibly condemn us? The answer, no one. Not your greatest critic or detractor, not your own heart, not the very demons of hell. 
Christ's work has secured our freedom from condemnation. And then in one sentence, four clauses here, the back half of verse 34, Paul describes exactly what that securing work was. Christ Jesus is the one who died. That's the first clause. Though sinless entirely in himself, death is the consequence for sin. So Christ dies, not because of his sin, but because of ours. And then Paul goes on, but even more has been raised. He resurrected on the third day and in doing so, triumphed over the power of sin and death. And it goes on. He also is at the right hand of God. What happened days after the resurrection is that Christ bodily ascended into heaven. Jesus Christ living was taken into heaven and he's there now reigning and ruling at the right hand of God. And then there's a fourth clause and intercedes for us. The last few words of verse 34. That's where Christ is right now, seated and interceding. His work is finished. He sat down at the right hand of the Father to intercede regarding the innocence of all who received God's grace through faith. His presence at the right hand of the throne in heaven is assurance of our atonement. The closing argument is present there on our behalf, interceding for us. And it is clear and convincing and certain. And in the final courtroom of God's ultimate judgment, those who have received God's grace by faith will absolutely be pronounced innocent. No judge could ever offer any other verdict. Nothing can separate us from God. I've tried to point this out a few times over chapter eight because it's, it's so astonishing to witness. And that is the unity and the work of the fullness of God, the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Romans 8.32 tells us that the Son was offered up. He was literally given over. The Father initiated that for us. He gave up the Son. Then on the cross, the Son secured that forgiveness on our behalf. And now he's seated at the right hand of the Father, securing it for us perpetually by interceding for us at the Father's right hand. And then the Holy Spirit is present, guaranteeing it, applying it to us. Ephesians 1, he's the down payment, the deposit of our certain inheritance. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It's as if in the face of whatever charge, whatever accuser, whatever judge or jury, Jesus stands before the Father in heaven. And if someone were to attempt to accuse you there, if someone were to attempt to convict you there, Jesus would stand up on your behalf and say, over my dead, risen, glorified, ascended, reigning, interceding body, is this person guilty? You are absolutely innocent. Nothing could ever take that away from you. Who could stand against you? No one. Who could accuse you? No one. Who could condemn you? No one. Why? Because there's Jesus Christ. And how do you know it as a believer? Because the Holy Spirit is present within you, a deposit guaranteeing that moment on your behalf. Every single person who's been saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ has that at work in them right now and all of their days. Amen? And it's a beautiful truth. But Paul's not done. He asks another question in verse 35. And from verses 35 down to 39, he's going to work on answering that question. 
That question is who can separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing can separate us from God, but it's also true that nothing can separate the love of God from us. Here's how Paul walks through this. Let me just read the rest of 35 and then verse 36. Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, because of you, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. What could separate us from the love of God? The answer, nothing. And so Paul gives a list of seven different items. Could affliction or distress or persecution? The answer is no. Let me transliterate that for you. Not the hardships of living in a broken world that is hostile toward God. Those hardships cannot separate you from God's love. You might be sitting here this morning saying, Tim, you don't understand how difficult the last season has been. You don't understand how much affliction or distress there's been in the last year or five years or 10 years of my life. And I would look back to you and say, you're right. I maybe can't understand it. I can empathize, I can sympathize, but I, I'm not you, so I can't understand the full depth of the difficulty or the affliction or the distress that you might have been facing over the last few years. But I can guarantee you with Paul that no matter how much more difficult that thing gets, it cannot separate you from the love of God. To borrow from what Paul has said earlier, there is no present suffering that could even compare to the glory that is going to be revealed. I don't know how hard or how difficult it's been over the last season of life for you, but I know with certainty that no matter how hard it might have been or how much harder it could possibly get, those things cannot separate you from the love of God. He also says that famine or nakedness couldn't separate you from the love of God. Not even the potential of material lack could do that. Let me jump on like a 45-second soapbox. There's no amount of poverty, there's no amount of hunger or nakedness, Paul says, that could separate a follower of Christ from the love of God. That's what is so insidious and disgusting about the prosperity gospel. That someone would walk into a poor, impoverished area, a third world country, and have the audacity to look at those people and say, you know how you'll know that God loves you is if you have more money. That locks people into bondage. So the only way I know that God loves me is if my life is prospering materially. That's such a lie. Romans 8 verse 35 literally refutes it. There's no amount of famine or nakedness that could ever separate those who have been justified from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. It's an amazing truth that is awful that somebody states otherwise in some places and is also awful that people here in suburban America where we have a lot of money often get tempted into thinking it's true, well, God must love me because I'm rich. Absolutely not. It's, it sounds good to American ears but it's totally not the case. Paul says, no, not the potential of material lack. That could never separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. And then he offers two more. Neither could danger or sword, not even the potential of death, specifically martyrdom. And then he offers 
an Old Testament statement from Psalm 44, verse 22, as proof that this has always been the case for God's people. Because of you, God, this is from the Israelite perspective, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. It's normal for God's people to face death because of the name of God. It always has been, Paul offers from Psalm 44, 22. I want to give you a particular lens here really briefly to look at Romans 8 through. And, and uh, we waited until today to do this because it's absolutely true that we can look at all of the suffering and weakness and affliction that Romans 8 talks about and apply it in a broad sense to everything that we face by living in a broken world. That's absolutely the case. But Paul's original audience, the Christians in Rome, they would have read a level of specificity into that. It would have uh, jumped off the page at them. Paul says there's no condemnation. That's in Romans 8, 1. He reaffirms the fact that we are, as believers, in Christ and that the Holy Spirit is in us and that Holy Spirit is sanctifying. It's crying out our adoption, Abba, Father. It's helping and interceding and aligning our hearts. It's carrying us on toward a certain future glorification. But look back at verse 17 with me. Paul lays out those truths about the Holy Spirit and he says, and if children also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. It is good and right to look at that suffering in a general sense, but Paul's original audience would have read that in a specific persecution kind of sense. In attempting to live out faith as justified people in first century Rome, they would have done so, the Romans would have done so in the face of very real persecution. They would have suffered for the sake of the gospel. And so Paul offered them assurance that the Holy Spirit was there to help them, to intercede for them, to align their hearts with the will of God, to carry them over the finish line into glorification. He was offering assurance that no Roman adversary could bring a charge against them that would separate them from God, that no hardship or lack or martyrdom because of the gospel could possibly separate them from the love of God. It's right for us to think of these verses in broad terms. It's also necessary that we see them with a level of specificity. We shouldn't ever overlook the fact that as devoted followers of Jesus Christ, we are told that we will face persecution and suffering. In those moments, we have this assurance. If a believer today who's trying to live out a devoted following of Jesus Christ in Syria were to pick up this passage of scripture and read it to themselves, that idea of suffering because of the gospel would scream off the page of Romans 8 to them. We read it in a context that doesn't normally face persecution and we kind of miss it. And it's, it's not to say that that means we understand the passage wrong because that's not true. We suffer in various ways. We have weakness in a lot of ways. We face affliction and distress but the gospel also tells us that we will suffer for our faith in Jesus Christ. And even in those moments, the Holy Spirit is our deposit, guaranteeing and assuring our future glorification and our future eternity with the Lord. Paul goes on from there in verse 37, and he says this, no, in all these things, Affliction, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. In all of those things, we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. If you remember back to Romans chapter 5, when we talked about Romans 5 verse 20, 
Paul makes a statement that where sin multiplied, grace multiplied all the more. And I said that the prefix there should be translated uh, that where grace abounds, or where sin abounds, grace superabounds. Paul makes the same statement here about us being conquerors. We are super conquerors through Christ. In all of those things, all the affliction, all the distress, all the possible material lack, the potential of dying for our faith, we're super conquerors in those things. Most of us have had a moment, uh, typically as children, where we thought it would be really awesome to be a superhero. That's the reason why uh, superhero movie series like The Avengers, like Batman, like Spider-Man, those are still really alluring to us as adults because there's this childhood piece of us that would love to strap on a cape and have some superpower, right? Have you ever had the conversation as an adult? Well, if you could have one superpower, which one would it be? The answer is flying. It's always flying. <laughs> we, we think about that. There's a, there's a time in our life where we think about being superheroes, right? Steven Rogers in the, uh, in the Captain America strain of Avenger movies. He gets injected with this blue chemical. He goes into this little chamber and he comes out Captain America, right? He tried to join the military. He was too weak, too frail, too sick, couldn't do it. They put him in the little chamber. He comes out all hulked up and now there's no German enemy that could ever stand against him. Amazing moment. Peter Parker, kind of a nerdy dude, right? Gets bit by a mutant spider and he mutant spider puts whatever poison into him and now he's Spider-Man and there's no New York criminal that could ever stand up against him, right? Something goes into these, soup, to these normal men and they come out superheroes and it's amazing. When you became a believer, don't stretch this illustration too far, <laughs> but when you became a believer, something came into you that has made you no longer weak and frail and subject to all of the hardships of living in a broken world, but has instead made you a super conqueror. That thing that has come into you is the Holy Spirit. Acts 2 is the perfect picture. There are the disciples. They're hiding in this room because Christ told them to wait there and he would come to them. And then in Acts chapter 2, Pentecost happens and the Holy Spirit comes. And these normal men from Galilee go from being scared and hiding because of the death of Jesus and his resurrection to the greatest proclaimers of the gospel that the world has ever known. Why? What caused that? The presence of the Holy Spirit. All of a sudden, they realize from deep inside their very core that nothing could ever separate them from the certainty of their future in the presence of the glory of the Lord. So why would I be afraid? Why would I not go proclaim the gospel? Why would I not unashamedly live a life that makes much of Jesus Christ and his work? Super conqueror. You can't take it from me in the here and now. It's guaranteed for me in the future. And the Holy Spirit testifies that to me all the time, ongoing, right? You've been justified by faith, by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. You've been super conquered. That's who you are. Strap the cape on. Let's go. The Holy Spirit testifies that within you, guarantees it for you in the future. And as if that's not enough, Paul finishes with this unbelievable flourish in verses 38 and 39. He says, for I am. Notice the change in pronoun. Up until now, all throughout Romans chapter eight, he's been saying we or us. He's been saying you he arrives down here and it's like in a moment of just being overcome by the truth of these things, he says, for I am persuaded 
that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Neither death nor life, not the grim prospect of physical death could possibly separate you from his love. Not the rewards of life, all the success of this world, all the struggles of this world, all the happiness and joy and fulfillment that comes from achieving goals or succeeding, whatever the case might look like, all the pleasures of sin, right? Nothing could separate us. Then he goes on and he says, neither angels nor rulers. So you can think of that as not heavenly messengers or earthly monarchs. For the people reading this in Rome, no Roman emperor could ever separate you from Christ's love. Us reading that today, no really wonderful president or really awful president, no great governor or really bad governor, no great mayor or really bad mayor could ever separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing in the past, nothing in the present, nothing in the future. You might be here weighing out whether or not you're in the us category and thinking to yourself, you don't understand the depth of my own sin. You don't know the things that I've done or the things that have happened in my life. And I would look back to you and I would say, it doesn't matter if I know. It doesn't. Because if you are justified, then none of that past stuff could separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. If you are justified, then no stumblings in the future could ever separate you from the love that's in Christ Jesus. No powers, he says, no influential person or thing in our world, no height nor depth, nothing in all of the spatial universe around us. And in case he left something out, he says, nor any other created thing. It's like he's screaming at the, at the reader, do you understand what I'm saying? If in fact, the father set his love upon you in eternity past, you were called and justified and you will be glorified. If that's you, nothing could separate you from the love of Christ. Nothing at all. It's not possible. And look at where it's situated at the very end of the verse here, the very end of Romans 8. Neither height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Consider where this whole section began, Romans 6. All who are justified by Christ have new life in Christ. If you just flip back to Romans 6 and look at like the first 14 verses or so, and you just scan your eyes across the page, what you're gonna see is that the word in just jumps out numerous times. Should we continue in sin so the grace may multiply? How can we who died to sin still live in it? Are you unaware that you were baptized into Christ Jesus, into his death? You were buried with him by baptism in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. We were united with him in the likeness of his death. We will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. In, 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 in. It's nine different times in like a 14 verse chunk. And then Paul gets to the very end of this. And he says that nothing could separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We died to sin. We can't live in it any longer. We've been baptized into union with Christ. We have new life in that union. Now we live in Christ. The Holy Spirit lives in us, empowering, applying, helping, interceding, guaranteeing you in Christ. 
Christ in you. And there, in that, it is impossible for the love of God to be separated from you. No one could ever wrench it out of your heart. No one could ever wrench you out of the hand of Christ. I'm not gonna offer any sort of application this morning. Instead, I'm gonna offer an encouragement. Brian, you guys can, can come back up. Uh, this is an encouragement from me to you as your pastor. All those who are justified by Christ have new life in Christ. That was initiated by the Father, secured on the cross by the Son, applied to you by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And it means this. A gospel-centered life is one that not only firmly builds itself upon the truth of Jesus Christ crucified on the cross, but also one that is fully reliant upon our eternal union with Him and the presence of the Holy Spirit within us. It leads to this. Our certainty of the work of Christ on the cross leads us to be mission-driven in a broken and a sin-filled world. Our certainty of the Holy Spirit within us leads us to pursue holiness in all that we face in this life, confident that one day we will be fully glorified. You can be certain of those things, Paul says. Romans chapter 8 starts with no condemnation. If you've been justified, you cannot be condemned. It ends with no separation. If you've been justified, you cannot be condemned and you cannot be separated. The Son secured your freedom from the condemnation of sin. The Holy Spirit assures the reality that you can't be separated from Him. And so what does it mean to live as a follower of Jesus Christ? It means to live in that kind of confidence. Nothing could ever separate me from God. Nothing could condemn me. And nothing could ever separate the love of God from me. The Holy Spirit absolutely guarantees it. And so oftentimes, it's like we walk around as Christians with like a ho-hum. This world is so hard. Sin is so bad. Everything is so broken. How am I ever going to survive? Paul would scream at you. You're going to survive because the Holy Spirit's there. You can't be condemned. No lawyer, no plaintiff, no judge could ever convict you. You can't be separated. No affliction, no distress, no persecution, no famine, no nakedness, no death, no sword could ever separate you from the love of God. No height, no depth, no past, no future, no angel, no ruler. Nothing could do it. So we don't walk around all ho-hum. What do we walk around as? Super conquerors. That's who we are. That's what it means to follow Jesus. That's what it is to have been justified, to have had the Holy Spirit come into our hearts. And so a gospel-centered life is one that says, Holy Spirit, live that out of me. Live that out of me. One that lives in the confidence of what we're going to sing right now. Before the throne of God above. I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue could bid me thence depart. Nothing could separate you from God. Nothing could separate God's love from you. Let's stand up and sing. Mm -hmm.